Today we're resuming our study of 1 Samuel, so if you'd please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to chapter 14. Today we're going to look at the first 23 verses together 
again, if you happen to be visiting with us, our normal practice is uh, to choose a book of the Bible and to work our way through it uh, little by little. Uh, we began First Samuel in August, and we took a five-week hiatus during the month of December, uh, but we're picking it back up today, and we'll begin in chapter 14. And I want to begin with a wild story from history. If you got on a plane this afternoon and flew to Germany and traveled to the city of Munster and looked at St. Lambert's Church, you would see three cages hanging outside of the church building. Uh, Those cages, about the size of coffins, were first hung in 1535-1536. They're still hanging today. Well, here's the story. Those cages have been hanging outside of the church for 500 years because when they were first hung, there were bodies in them. There was one body in each cage. Bodies of cult leaders who led a rebellion that took over the city of Munster for a year. And then when the city was retaken by the local prince, the three ringleaders were tried, tortured, executed, and their bodies, instead of being buried, were put in those cages to hang outside the church as a warning to the public. And here's something that's wild. During World War II, they fell down. The shelling, bombing, fighting of World War II, whatever it was, these three cages fell. But after the war, the people of Munster put them back up. The story is wild. And there are four notable leaders. And just to make it very simple, there were two named John and two named Bernard. The first John was a self proclaimed prophet. He had a vision that Munster, Germany was to be the new Jerusalem, the capital of God's people. And so all of God's people were to flock there and they would take over the city and claim it as their capital. Well, after he was killed, and we'll get to that in a moment, the second John started having visions and getting messages from God, and none of them are surprising. The sinful human mind always does the same thing. What do you think was one of the messages John started to get? You know what we need in the city? Polygamy. (laughs) We need polygamy. That's That's what we need. We have too many single women in this city. And I think by the end of the rebellion in Munster, John number two had 16 wives. The other divine message that John number two got was that private property rights disappeared. Right? You hear this? God told me to give, uh, for you to give me your women and all your stuff. Right? Well, John number two and the two Bernards would wind up in those cages. What about John number one? And why am I telling you this story? 
Well, soon after these lunatics took over Munster, uh, the prince who reigned over that region brought his army and surrounded the city, and there was a siege that would last for about a year. So you've got all of the faithful, the followers of John number one and John number two, they're all inside, locked behind the walls and gates of the city, and the army of the prince is out there and has them surrounded. But on Easter Sunday, 1534, John number one has another vision. The judgment of God would fall on those wicked unbelievers surrounding their beautiful new Jerusalem. And he told the people that he'd been chosen. He was the new Gideon. And that he would have his 12 disciples right out with him. And together they would defeat the enemy and restore peace to the holy city. And so John number one and his 12 men rode out to challenge the army of the prince. And what do you think happened? They were all killed immediately. And the prince's soldiers did some very disrespectful things with John number one's body. That's all I will say. But again, why am I telling you this story? Because in 1 Samuel 14, Jonathan, the son of King Saul, will himself leave a place of safety. He will leave a fortress. Not taking 12 men with him, but taking one other person, his armor bearer. And together, these two men plan to attack and capture a Philistine stronghold that is threatening the people of God. It is a plan that to the human mind seems just as impossible as what happened at Munster to John number one. But unlike John number one, Jonathan doesn't die. The Philistines die. Their stronghold is taken by two men. And the people of God enjoy a great victory that day. So hopefully as we look at Jonathan, you'll be able to see why his daring attack was successful. And you'll see how he was unlike John number one. And you'll also see how he was unlike his father, Saul, the king of Israel. So let's pray and then we'll read our text together. Father God, I do pray that you would bless this preaching of your word. Lord, we do remember that your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. We also remember that stories like this, as Paul himself would write, are meant to teach us so that we might not repeat the same folly as those in the past. And so we are grateful for accounts. Accounts like this from so long ago, but accounts that still have much to say to your church today. So by your Spirit, would you speak to us during this time? I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read our text. Samuel, 1 Samuel 14, 1 through 23. 
One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of one was Bozus. The name of the other was Sinna. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming up out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer, killed them after him. And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor bearer made uh, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length of an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they'd counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. 
And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow. And there was very great confusion. Now the, the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even as they turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So that's our text. And in the first five verses, we're given the context for this daring attack by Jonathan. And the first thing we see is Jonathan's plan. Verse 1. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. Right? Here's probably the... The, the first and most important difference between what J Jonathan does and what happened in Munster. Jonathan is actually following a command of God. If you remember back to what had been previously spoken by Samuel, King Saul was to rid the land of the Philistines. I think it's commanded back in chapter 10, right after Saul is anointed king. God does not want his people subjugated by the idolatrous pagan Philistines. He wants them removed. And Jonathan's plan is in line with the will of God. Jonathan doesn't want to hunker down. He doesn't want to play it safe. He doesn't just want to sit and wait and see. He wants to strike his enemies and God's enemies. But he doesn't share his plan with his father. Probably because he knows what his father would say. Well, we see his father in verse 2. You know, back on the last Sunday in November, we left Saul in a very dark place with only 600 soldiers to the Philistine tens of thousands. You remember Saul broke under pressure he was supposed to wait for Samuel the prophet to come to him so that Samuel could offer a sacrifice and then receive instructions from the Lord. But Saul couldn't wait. The enemy was advancing. His men were deserting him. He's worried that if something wasn't done now, it would be too late. And so without Samuel, Saul offers the sacrifice hoping that by some magic they'd be spared. He'd forgotten Samuel's words to him. Saul, God is with you. Saul, only fear the Lord. He'd forgotten this. But who shows up right when he finishes offering the sacrifices? Samuel. Samuel the prophet catches the king red-handed. And do you remember the judgment Samuel gives? Saul, you won't have a dynasty. You'll remain king for now. But your son will not rule after you. 
And you know, the more we learn about Jonathan, the more grievous this judgment is. Because Jonathan would have made a great king. He is fearless and brave. He is a valiant warrior. He is a faithful man of God. In his commentary, Richard Phillips writes, In none of these accounts does Jonathan display the least vice. Always he acts according to a bold faith and a keen devotion to the Lord and his servants. We know that Jonathan must have been a sinner, yet in his biblical portrayal, we see a shining model of Christian manhood, faithful friendship, and devoted service to the cause of the Lord. End quote. And yet because of his father's sin, Jonathan will never be king. You know, after Samuel gives that hard verdict, you remember last, last time he, he leaves. The mediator that Saul has between him and the Lord leaves. And so Saul and his 600 men just fall back to a position of safety, just awaiting whatever comes next. And that's where we find him today. He's in a rocky, mountainous position. And across the long valley... The Philistines are waiting in another high, rocky place. And who's with Saul? Well, he's got his 600 soldiers. And then we're told that a man named Ahijah is with him. Now, that might not mean much unless you pay attention to the genealogy. Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother. You remember Ichabod? The child that was born when the news of the ark came, that it had been taken. The the child whose name means the glory of the Lord has departed. That's his uncle. You keep reading? The son of Phinehas. Remember Phinehas and Hophni? The two sons of Eli back in chapter 3. Those those priests that were... uh, harassing the worshipers who would come to the tabernacle. They'd come to the tabernacle and offer sacrifices, and Hophni and Phinehas would steal the prime cuts of meat and eat them, and then threaten the people with force if they protested. Hophni and Phinehas, the two priests who treated the house of God as if it were a brothel, The priests who took advantage of the women who served at the tabernacle. And you'll remember God rejected that line. God cut them off. He spoke to Eli, no one from your house will serve in the tabernacle again. We've seen all this before, but here is Saul taking up with a man, making him his personal priest in the absence of Samuel. You will be my priest, Ahijah. So you have a king whose dynasty has been cut off, receiving spiritual counsel from the son of a priestly family that's been cut off. You know, we we see more and more how the writer of 1 Samuel is preparing us for King David. Because this man is unsuited 
for this office. He's unfit to be king. And and there's a statement I thought was helpful about Saul. One, One commentary noted saying, it's not that Saul is utterly evil, but that he is persistently foolish. You know, Saul isn't like Ahab. He hasn't married a Jezebel. He's not trying to hunt down Samuel and and murder him. He's not utterly evil. He's just persistently foolish. He keeps doing dumb things, unfaithful things. He keeps living as though God doesn't exist and that he has to just do it all himself. But how different he is from Jonathan. Because as we'll see, God has not abandoned them. God is not far away. He will help Jonathan. But Saul remains in this dark place by his own doing. Then look at verse 4. We're given some geography. Some geography that you might be tempted to skip over if you were reading this at at your home in the morning. Uh, But it's important. Jonathan wants to get from his garrison over to the Philistine garrison. In order to do that, he's going to have to go down the steep, rocky crag he's currently on top of. Then he's going to have to cross a valley and then go up a rocky crag on the other side. And we're given the names of these two high places, Bozes and Sinna. You know, those names are more descriptive than anything. Maybe you have this note in your Bible, but Bozes means slippery. Slippery. And then sinna means thorny. And so Jonathan is going to have to climb down a rock face called Slippery, cross a valley, and then climb up another rock face called Thorny. What's the point? What Jonathan wants to do is seemingly impossible. You know, why are the two sides currently at a stalemate, just hunkering down? Because neither side can get to the other. Because one is on top of Mount Slippery, and the other is on top of Mount Thorny. It appears totally impassable. But again, Jonathan is not content to sit and wait. Look at what he says in verse 6. This is pure gold. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. You know, Jonathan and his armor bearer are able to slip away. And they're looking across the valley to the other side. And he says, let's go over to those uncircumcised. Let's go to those pagan usurpers. Those enemy trespassers who are outside of the covenant community. It may be that God will work for us. See what he's saying here? He's not saying God must Work for us. The two of us can run headlong into a hornet's nest of enemies, and God must deliver us. 
No, Jonathan is not saying that. He's saying God can work a great salvation if he wishes. Jonathan is not doubting the Lord. He's leaving the Lord free to act, to do whatever he thinks is right. And here's another big difference between Jonathan and what happened at Munster. Jonathan doesn't announce to his father and the 600 soldiers, hey, I've had a vision. And me and my armor bearer will storm the heathen fortress alone and save all of you. He doesn't do that. He slips off unnoticed. He has a desire to fight for his God, for his king, for his people, for his land. And so he slips off and offers himself as an instrument in the hand of the Lord. To be used or not, that would be up to the Lord. And you know, in thinking through this, I was reminded of those five or six families that planted this congregation some 17 years ago. And they didn't storm out of their previous congregation and presumptuously declare that through them God must work. God must do something. No, they slipped away as willing instruments placing themselves in the Lord's hands with the conviction that God was calling them to do something new. And in those first meetings among that original core group, those families, I am sure, could have echoed Jonathan, it may be that the Lord will work. And now looking back with the gift of hindsight, we can answer that, can't we? How he has worked among this church. He has done wonderful things. Now, members of that first core group have never asked for special recognition or credit, and they never would. But I think it's right and proper to thank God for the work he accomplished through them. Do not take this congregation for granted. None of us would be here this morning apart from them. You would not know me. I would not know you. There would not be a PCA congregation worshiping and serving the Lord in Corinth if not for that group slipping away, placing themselves at the Lord's disposal, and in faith knowing that God could choose to work. So as we go forward to a new year, to Lord willing, a new facility, as new members join, may God give us the grace to stay humble and thankful for what he's done, for what he's doing. And may we as a congregation ever shun presumption. Let's look at the second half of this amazing statement by Jonathan. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few.
Jonathan's confidence to go at this alone with only one friend came from truth he knew about God. He's not limited by lack of manpower. Surely Jonathan remembered the story of Gideon and how the Lord thought Gideon's army was too large. And so he whittled Gideon's forces from 32,000 down to 300. And with those 300, defeated the Midianites. Later in Israel's history, this is one of my favorite stories. The king of Syria is hunting for Elisha. And he comes at night and surrounds the city where Elisha is. And in the morning, Elisha's servant wakes up and looks out over the wall and is stricken with terror because he sees that they're surrounded. He says, alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha responded saying, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elijah prayed that the Lord would open the eyes of his servant so that he could see. And the Lord did. And the young man beheld that the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Jonathan knows this God. He knows that nothing can keep him from saving by many or by few. You know, in the fullness of time, what would be seen as the greatest example of this? Wouldn't it be the Lord Jesus, all alone, walking to the cross, or carrying his cross, to win salvation for the full number of his people. And not the Jewish leaders, not the Romans, not Satan himself, not death, the great enemy of humanity, could hinder the Lord from saving his people. Jonathan knows this God. He knows that he doesn't need 600 soldiers. He doesn't need 600,000 soldiers. He could, if he chose, defeat their enemies simply with the king's son and his armor bearer. And so the two scale down slippery rock. They cross the valley. And there Jonathan has a plan. It's somewhat like Gideon's fleece. He's going to wait for a sign. The two of them will show themselves to the Philistines. And if the Philistines tell them to stop, stay where you are, they'll wait. They'll reassess the situation. But if the Philistines invite them up, then it's game on. And the two of them are going to crack some skulls. Well, what happens? The Philistine sentries spot them. They say, ah, look, Hebrews coming out out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. Meaning, look at these rats that have come out of their holes. Come up to us so that we can teach you a lesson. It's game on. Jonathan looked at his armor bearer and said, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. 
And the two of them climbed up the thorny rock face. They broke like a storm upon the camp. Dropped 20 Philistines in no time. But it wasn't just them, was it? Look at verse 15. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked. And it became a very great panic. How did that happen? Now, Jonathan, for all his virtue and for all his courage, could not make the earth quake. This was the work of the Lord. He'd chosen to act. The credit is given to him. We see that in verse 23. So the Lord saved Israel that day. He's the one who did this. He hadn't let the two of them die amongst a heap of bodies in the enemy camp. They both walked out of there alive. And then their fair weather friends showed up to mop up those who had scattered. But make no doubt, this was a divine salvation Now, we'll come back to Saul's response next week. But we get another instance here just of his persistent foolishness. After the watchmen see the chaos taking place way over there, Saul asks for a head count. He discovers that his son and the armor bearer are missing. Then he says to the rejected priest, bring the ark of God here. Again, if you've been with us through this study, you should hear that and think, Saul, what are you thinking? Don't you remember the disaster that happened the last time someone said, oh, bring the ark. It was captured. But Saul hasn't seemed to have learned anything. But more on Saul next week. There are three points of application for us that I want to point to in our time left. First is this. God wins the battle. And God wins the battle by His strength and by His power and by His resources, not our own. We spent the previous five weeks looking at the kingdom of God and hopefully you remember that the kingdom isn't dependent upon the strength and faithfulness and generosity of the people. If it was, it would have floundered long ago. Over and over again, we saw that God's people kept failing. And it was God himself who brought about the victory. It was God himself who established the kingdom. Saul and his 600 men did nothing to win this victory. So as we begin this new year, Let's remember that God can win by many or he can win by few because the victory is dependent upon him. Not our intellect, not our influence, not our money, not our power. Now, John Knox was the man God used to bring the gospel to Scotland in the 16th century. And he was well known by the Roman Catholic queen, Mary, Queen of Scots. 
And Mary famously said of Knox, I fear the blank of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. Fill in that blank. What did she say? Did she say, I fear the influence of John Knox more than all the armies of Europe? Did she say, I fear the wealth of John Knox, the political power of John Knox, the charisma of John Knox more than all the armies of Europe? No, that's not what she said. Mary, Queen of Scots, said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. She felt that fear because he was praying to this God and nothing can hinder him from accomplishing his purpose and building his kingdom. He can save by many or by few. Second application. If God is for us, who can be against us? We saw this in today's text. God was for Jonathan. Therefore, it didn't matter how many were against him. It could have been 30,000 over there. It could have been 300,000. It does not matter. You think of when Sennacherib had surrounded uh, the, the city of Jerusalem. And Hezekiah prays. And the angel of the Lord goes out and in one night strikes down 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, you and I are not fighting against Philistines today. But we still need to hear this. Do you remember what Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If God is for you, who can be against you? As we saw last week, as we looked at the kingdom in Revelation, God wins. And nothing in all creation can separate his people from his love. As Augustus Toplady wrote in his hymn, Things future nor things that are now, not all things below or above, can make him his purpose forego. 
or sever my soul from his love. God is for us. Who can be against us? Third and finally, knowing what we know about our Lord, that nothing can hinder his purpose, that nothing can separate his people from his love, who will we resemble in this upcoming year? Will we look more like Saul, who just wanted to hunker down and play it safe? and not risk any loss or failure or defeat? Or will we look more like Jonathan? Will our love for the Lord and our love for the church and our love for neighbor compel us to do something new? Something for the Lord's glory. Something that you may have to do alone. Or you may do with just one other friend. And again, this congregation would not exist if that core group had decided to play it safe 17 years ago and not take any risk. Who will we be like in 2024? Like Saul or like Jonathan? Will we make excuses about all the things that are hindering us? Or will we make Jonathan's words our own? It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Let's pray. God, I do pray that as your people, we would be given more knowledge of you, that we might see you, that we might hear more of who you are in your word, that through the eyes of faith, we would look to Christ, our Savior. Would we hunger and desire to know more of this God. And Lord, would that produce within us love for you and trust in you and a desire to step out and maybe take risks, to maybe do something new, to do something alone all to your honor and glory. Father, would you help your timid people and give them courage? Would knowledge of you be the strength that is needed? Lord, would you open opportunities for those in this congregation to serve? Lord, in your wisdom and in your providence, you have scattered us all over this county. You have put us in different places. You've put, you've put these people in places that, that I could never go. Lord, you've placed them there. Would you use them as your instruments for your glory? 
that your kingdom would continue and that more would come to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you do this, we ask. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.